This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell if somebody's willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howard Ryan has been that guy, most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant, an expert witness, and he teaches state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. This podcast series will clear the air on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take you on a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his fellow crime scene experts from around the world for a first-hand, no-nonsense, ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Welcome back to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm excited about this week's uh, episode. I have a special guest here today, Kristen Kobo, who is a licensed clinical social worker. And our topic this week is going to be about mental health as it pertains to law enforcement. And I want to talk about it from two different angles. First, we're briefly going to talk about mental health, uh, police responding to cases when they encounter people with mental health issues, how their decision-making changes if they do know that there's mental health, how many times they respond to somebody they don't know there's a mental health issue, and what can be done as far as the training of police in that field, because it's a, it's something that's being talked about a lot, and especially with some of the recent events and the, the cry for defunding or abolishing police, and uh, we'll get into that, and how it can potentially help down the line in better policing if we get better training. So... Kristen, thanks for being here today. Um, I'm, I'm glad you agreed to sit in and talk about this. I think it's an important topic. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. This is something I certainly feel passionate about. Good. Um, so let's talk a little bit at first about... Uh, I'm going to... I'll run a few things by you. Tell me what you think. Um, I, I found some statistics in, in preparing for this that I, I... I Actually, I didn't know. They were a little startling. They were They were kind of eye-opening. So it's no secret that there's about 330, 331 million people in the country, according to the, the last census. That's their estimate for 2020, but <clears throat> experts say that there are more than 42 million American adults affected by mental illness every year, and that comes in various forms, I guess. But um, when you think about that, that's almost 13% of the population. That's a pretty big number. That's a bigger number than I thought. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we all probably know somebody in our lives or knew somebody in our lives that had some sort of issue. Um, You know, I, I was born a long, long time ago. (laughs) And, you know, growing up when you had somebody with, uh, I remember being a kid, you know, you had a kid with some issue. The parents would always say, well, they're hyper. Mm-hmm. Hyper was the like this, the hyper was a coverall term for anybody with any issue in right. school or any kid who misbehaved. But as time went by, I think it got a little bit more uh, open discussion about what the problems were with some people. But thirteen percent is big. Did you 
did you see a similar number in your... Right. Yeah. And I think that back when you were a kid, talking about mental health was very taboo. And now um, we're trying to really reduce that stigma that's attached and really help people to feel comfortable talking about their mental health. You know, I think that mental health is just as important, if not more important than physical health. Yeah, I agree. I think another thing that a lot of people, well, certainly something that was never talked about when I first got into law enforcement was mental health of the officers and how, how they were doing. So we'll spin this from in a different direction in a few minutes going that route. But across the board, I didn't think, um, I didn't think you heard any real open, honest conversation about it or not much anyways, as I was growing up. The other thing is when you heard the term PTSD, post-traumatic stress, um, it's, it was really only a term that was used around military personnel right? in times of conflict or, or whatever it may be. And, you know, certainly the military people, they have a, they have a, a reason to, to, you know, suffer from this and some of the things they've seen and done, right. but some of the officers uh, did too. And I want to talk about that in a minute. Okay. Uh, defunding and abolishing police. I said in one of the last episodes, what an asinine thing I thought that was. I actually believe, and I hope I'm right, there's not going to be defunding. A defunding. There's just going to be a reassessment and a reinvestment right. in law enforcement. And what's your take on, on really a serious training program for law enforcement in this field? Right. I think we need to develop some sort of um, assessment to see how departments are doing across the nation in terms of training their officers uh, to be more aware of their own mental health and the mental health of those that they're working with. And I think that we need to invest more into those training pro programs in a, you know, broadly, you know, we're looking at, at initially when officers are trained and then ongoing. So maybe they have quarterly trainings, but not just an e-learning training where they sit in front of their computer and check off that they read everything. I think that we really need something interactive to really resonate with all the officers and help them to understand how this impacts them, their lives, their families, and those that they work with. Yeah. I, I think when I, when I was at the agency I was with, I think if I had known some of the numbers and saw what a real problem or prevalent problem it was, or how, you know, the population numbers is almost 13%. When you think about uh, 13% and then you factor that into your, your public contacts as a police officer, you are, uh, you're going to run into a more than you think. And it makes me think back about how many people that I actually encounter that had mental problems of some sort. And I just never knew it. Right. And I think that it, it helps you shift your mindset which is really important because if you're going out as an officer and you're, it's a disorderly conduct or whatever you might be responding to, you might think like, wow, this, this person's acting like a jerk or this person's out of control. But if you know ahead of time, you know, maybe they're, they're suffering from mental health issue. Maybe they have more going on than meets the eye. You're really going to approach that situation differently. So some of the training, is, um, and you're, you know, you're in this field, some of the training uh, bring up and explore you know, certain indicators, behavioral indicators sure. or anything like that? I mean, did they do that? Yes, absolutely. You would look for signs um, upon pulling up on a scene. You would look for different behaviors, which I'm sure officers are already trained in to look for 
somebody that's under the influence, it's similar to look for certain behaviors of somebody in distress, suffering from a mental health disorder, whether it's they're having a panic attack or they're suffering from depression, whatever it may be. I, I, uh, the more I think about it, I, you hear all these ta- terms like de-escalation, you know, you see all these people running around saying, use your words, use your words, de-escalate. 95% of cops, I can guarantee you would say, okay, yeah, right. You know, when we show up, things are haywire sometimes, and I'm not going to be able to use my words and de-escalate. So what's your take on this? I mean, there's a, there's a time when you can, you can get out and have a verbal communication with somebody and maybe bring it down a level. But there's other times where it's beyond that. True. Yes. I think that, um, of course, in some situations, there's time if you pull up on a certain scene and it hasn't gotten out of hand yet and you're able to say what's going on, you assess, you're you're not you know, getting too close to the suspect because you don't want them to escalate certain de-escalation techniques. You're speaking in a low voice, you're calm. But then there's other situations where you're the police. You have to show up. You have to make sure that the safety of everybody is at you know, under control and you're thinking of everybody in the situation and you might have to uh, take action right away and you don't have time to de-escalate because things are out of hand. So what does that look like? You know, the general public a lot of times doesn't see that things get out of hand quickly and other people can be injured. You know, um, I think that it's easy for us to say, okay, you need to go in and de-escalate at all times before you do step two, but sometimes you don't have enough time. You show up and things are already out of hand and dangerous for the community. And a lot of this is the discretion of the of the responding officer. Interesting. I just did a, a podcast last week on a Jacob Blake, which was in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And I talked about use of deadly force, for example. And one of the criteria in the use of deadly force is you have to reasonably believe, you know, serious bodily injury or death to you or somebody else in a protection mode, right? When you're dealing with something like that, that's your discretion, that's your call, right? And they always say that these 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 cases have to be looked at from the view of the officer, not the view of a law book. And it's I feel it's kind of the same thing when you're dealing with people with mental health, health issues. Look, cops aren't going to get this right every time. Right. They're not they're not doctors, they're not, you know, psychological experts. A lot of times we can say, hey, you know, there's something not right with this guy. He's, uh, we used to call him EDPs or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and something's off, but we don't know what it is. Right. So, you know, I think when I look at these numbers, I think that if going back in time, I probably would have taken it a little more serious in an in-service training. First of all, if it was done by somebody qualified. Right. That's one of the big deals in the training. You walk down to an in-service training and say, whoa, our academy staff is going to teach us about mental health de-escalation. Okay, what did they read, a book? Right. A pamphlet? Or do they go to a lecture? Most agencies across the country, and maybe you find this in the private sector too, people love to do that. Well, we're going to train the trainer and we're going to cut out all our costs. Have you seen that? Yeah, I see that a lot. I've read a lot about cop-to-cop mental health training and um, mental health first aid training where you train police officers, and then they in turn go and train their departments. I'm not a huge fan. I think that we really need to get mental licensed mental health professionals out there um, training the officers right, you know, in the action. I think that we need to get into the departments and not only train 
by educating them, but also practice certain techniques, you know, run skits. I think that it, it, it's not enough to put out a training once a year and say, okay, well, we did this. I think we need to get in there and really make sure, again, this is resonating with all the officers. Yeah. I, I always remember, well, the other thing they do is, and this is not a shot at employees assistance programs in general, but they're the same people are there and they also work for the agency, which I'm going to dive into a little later on the other side. But I think when we sat in in-service trainings and you're looking up at an instructor or maybe two instructors for the day and one's going to, and every year it's the same crap, right? They say, well, we're going to have a block on domestic violence. Okay. We've done that the last five years in a row. Did anything really change? Right. And if something did change, it's probably some kind of paperwork, administrative filing thing that we really don't need to do here. That That is like an e-learning thing I could show you. Mm -hmm. But to get actual outside professionals, introduce them, hear their credentials, have everybody look up maybe and say, huh, and then have them tell you in like a kind of a no BS way, look, you're going to be dealing with them. And throw some of these numbers out. Look, there's 42 million Americans, 13%, you know, uh, are, are going to, you're going to, you're going to deal with. Here's another statistic, which I read. It blew my mind. People living with mental illnesses are 16 times more likely to die as a result of police uh, uh, police encounter where violence is uh, involved mm -hmm. compared to the general public. 16 times. Now, they're, 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 you get into this mental health part of it and you say, okay, well, what are we doing? And the truth is we're not doing that much. Mm -hmm. We're really not doing that much. And I think if they had told us that would have been a big thing. In 2017, one in four of the people that are killed in use of deadly force incidents with police were living with a mental illness. I think we hear about it, but it's kind of like, it's kind of like a little water washing over a rock. Right. It just, it, it ebbs and flows and we don't really stop and say, holy crap, you know, what are we doing here? Before we started recording today, one of the things we talked about, every single school shooting, every single one of them was talked about in the news as gun violence. Mm -hmm. Rarely did they lead the story with a mental health issue. Right. But every one of them were a mental health issue. You see that? Right. No? And I think when you really look into the facts and try to educate yourself outside of the media, you find that some of these kids that were the school shooters were struggling with mental health issues for long before those events took place. And there was a lot of failure in, in the system to help them rehabilitate. So there were missed opportunities for mental health treatment and medication possibly. And um, I think that we need to look at that moving forward to really identify what we can do. And, and there are so many more programs in the schools. I, I worked for one uh, for the last nine years, and I think that um, it's a phenomenal way to start addressing the issue um, and normalizing that sometimes you need help and you need to address your mental health condition. And it doesn't mean that um, you're sick or that you're not a good person. I think that we are at the point in our world today, we need to just acknowledge this as normal. We're going to, you know, you go to a physical once a year to check up on your physical health. We need to do the same for mental health. And I think that that's where we need to look, bringing more mental health treatment, awareness, and education into every department in America. It's long overdue. I think that uh, 
a lot of departments may have some training to check the boxes. And there's so much that they have to do um, in terms of training that sometimes I'm sure mental health awareness may fall to the wayside. But I think that needs to be at the forefront right now. Not only educating officers how to deal with people struggling with mental health issues, but also to treat their own mental health issues and get help when they need it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's funny you say that last part because the mental health for first aid and public safety, some of these courses that were out there in some of these states have uh, invested in it. The state of Massachusetts, for example, um, the chiefs of police association got together and they are literally um, investing in every single police officer and putting them through this in the state, which is a really big deal. That's great. One One of the cool things I think it says the course that they go through has also helped many officers in their personal lives, but by providing strategies to help themselves, their families, and uh, and their friends. It does. Mental Health First Aid is a wonderful course. I think that it offers a lot. It opens your eyes. Again, it helps you see things from a different lens. And I think that's key. Yeah. Another number that I don't think people realize, when you count federal, state, local law uh, law enforcement officers, and you even get into some of the tribal law enforcement entities around... You're at over 800,000 people. Right. That's a bigger number than I think the public understands is out there, um, you know, trying to make everything a little bit safer. Right. And I I think, you know, if we go talk a little bit about the Law Enforcement Mental Health and Wellness Act of 2018, it was passed in 2018. Um, Not sure where we are as a country with that right now, but I think that it's so important. And I think that they were trying to invest the time, energy, and funding into these important topics. What's going to make our law enforcement officers more equipped and stronger to deal with all of these issues? And and one of the number one things is their own mental health. We have to make sure that officers who are most at risk for uh, struggling with mental health issues, that they're taking care of themselves. It's kind of like parents. We need to make sure we're okay before we can be of any help to our children. Sure. So it's the same, you know, we, we have these brave men and women leading our, our communities and serving and protecting on a daily basis, but there's so much that they see that we don't even realize and so much trauma. And I think that we need to make sure that those resources are readily available. And I think that's one of the, the issues that we've come across. I, I agree a hundred percent. I look at, um, all of my time doing, you know, in, in, in an agency, we had an EAP program and they would come to some in-service trainings and they would speak from time to time. Uh, I remember very, uh, vividly one of their, uh, talks, they came out and they were, they were promoting their program, which was a good thing. You know, they were trying to do the right thing. And they said, any questions? And one of the people there raised their hand and said, is this confidential if we come to speak to you? And this is the topic we're going to dive into right now mm-hmm. because this is, and I remember him up there and he kind of waffled. Well, you need to understand. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, there was probably 85 officers in that room when they heard, well, that was it. They were done. The light switch went off. They completely disengaged. Some stayed in it because they wanted to argue with them, but the rest of them were like, I'm not doing this. If you can't tell me, if I'm going to come in there and, and, and spill it 
and tell you about some issues that I'm having that I might be embarrassed about. And you can't tell me that this isn't staying here. Um, I'm out. Right. So, I mean, what's your take on that? Well, that's just it. I think that, you know, as a mental health professional, a licensed mental health professional, we are bound by confidentiality. And we, there's, just as you are hippo, when you go to the doctor, they're not allowed to release any of your medical information. It's the same thing, if not stricter, with mental health treatment. And I think that EAPs are great for providing some education and identifying um, and eradicating issues within departments and organizations. Uh, but the majority of referrals to EAP are self-referrals. So if officers don't feel safe going to EAP and asking for help in fear that their superiors or their, you know, people on their unit are going to find out, then they're not going to be able to help them. So, you know, that brings up where else do they go for help? What, where do they turn when they do notice that they're struggling with maybe anxiety after a certain call that they went on or um, they notice that they're just in a funk. They're not feeling like themselves are more irritable, whatever it may be. Um, there are other ways to seek mental health treatment. You know, you could, we're talking private in insurance. You're looking at seeking a mental health professional. You could reach out to your insurance company. So what do you think are some of the barriers that they, I mean, I could tell you my, my example, but tell me what you see of why they won't go. So I think that there's still a stigma attached. As much as we're breaking that down and we're normalizing that we all struggle with mental health issues from time to time, I think that there's still that image as a law enforcement officer that you're big, tough, strong, and they don't see asking for help as showing strength. When in reality, asking for help when you're struggling with a mental health condition is one of the bravest things you could ever do. It could save your life and it could save your family. Um, I think that we need to start educating at all levels of the police department. So it's a conversation. It's a routine conversation. It's not just once in a blue uh, when they notice somebody's really struggling. I think it needs to be an everyday thing that people are acknowledging when they're going to, um, for example, um, big shooting that happened in Jersey City around Christmas time. So officers responding to this critical incident mm -hmm. and are they getting the critical incident debriefing that as a mental health professional, we know is critical to maintaining their mental health. So if just to talk a little more about critical incident debriefing, we're just talking after the incident, officers being debriefed with a mental health professional. So they're not, I, I would imagine that they would think that this means they have to sit down, talk about their feelings, talk about, you know, all those things that they don't want to talk about. But in reality, this is really just talking about what they saw. Just matter-of-factly running through what it is that they saw, what stood out to them in an effort to cut down the amount of post-traumatic stress injuries or post-traumatic stress disorders that are seen after big traumas. And that and that has been proven to help? It has been proven for, for example, first responders, officers, experiencing trauma in that manner, it has proven to decrease the amount of post-traumatic stress injuries that we see. Is there a time frame? Yeah. So it's critical to get that 
incident stress debriefing within 24 to 72 hours. That that blows my mind. I mean, I go back doing this 30 years. We responded to 9-11. We responded to officers shot and killed. Uh, there was one in particular who was a friend of mine. I had a conversation with him three days before. Um, and, uh, you know, three days later, I'm, I'm picking parts of them off of the floor of a car and putting them in a, in a little Rubbermaid container to get it to the rest of the body right. for the time of the thing. The funeral, nobody ever came in our office. Uh, nobody ever showed up. Nobody, But on the other side, they would walk in periodically from time to time and said, hey, we heard you had a bad car accident last night. We would just look at them like, if if you think that's the thing that's going to set me off, uh, thanks, but no thanks. And and as a result of that, over the period of time, we just kind of like backed away from it. Like nobody would really go. Right. That and the confidentiality thing was another big deal. Right. One of the other things is, repercussions. Right. Like what's going to happen to us if I go? And they find out. Right. I mean, and I, and you know, I've, I've talked to many police officers over the years, and that's one of the number one things when we talk about this that prevents them or what they say prevents them from seeking mental health treatment. Well, oh, if my sergeant ever found out or my lieutenant ever found out, I would be pulled off the unit. Um, and I, as a mental health professional, I struggle with that because um, I think that if you're struggling with allergies or you have something going on physically and you go to your doctor, you get medication, your unit doesn't even know about that. You're just maintaining your physical health, regardless of what it is. So if you're struggling with mental health issues, whether it be some anxiety, panic attacks, and you're addressing that, you're being responsible by acknowledging that that your mental health is at risk and you're seeing a professional that should be celebrated. And obviously, we need to make sure that officers are safe. But this is part of what makes them safe on the job. Yeah. You know, when we teach some of the classes we teach, one of them is on shooting reconstruction and <clears throat> investigating shooting, shooting scenes. We talk about the right way to do certain things and that little extra effort, or not even extra, just 100% effort, you know. And one of the things I say is... Um, I go back to an example of something I did. I made a mistake on a job. It wasn't a big mistake. It was mostly a kind of clerical typo thing. But as time went by, I could have turned into something, a, you know, a bit of a pain in the ass evidence-wise. But I fixed it. And, I, you know, I caught my mistake. I documented it properly and everything. But it bothered me, you know. I was kind of pissed that I did that. And the guy at the time who was, <laughs> who was our boss was this guy that... I mean, he was brutal. He was a, he was a very smart guy, but he was also very quick with the with the, the you know the ball breaking comment. And he looked at me. He goes, "That kind of bums you out that you did that, doesn't it?" I go, "Yeah, it does." He goes, "Well, today you sucked, but tomorrow's another day. So tomorrow, come in and don't suck." I remember that to this day. I was so pissed when he said it because I'm like, what a jerk. Yeah. But I, I remember that he said it and he was kind of right. So what I say to the people when I teach this class is like, look, this is your chosen profession. You chose to be here. You weren't drafted. Nobody dragged you in here to do this. So you chose to do this. Don't you want to do it the best you can? Well, I look at the same thing you're saying with mental health. If that makes the difference in me being better, a little bit more grounded, maybe a little bit more reasonable, I don't know, maybe whatever it does for me. If it helps in any way, why wouldn't I do it? Right. And I can tell you why we didn't do it in the past is all the things we just talked about. I wouldn't have done it. 
there was no way. Like being perceived as a weak link. Right. I don't want to be the weak link. So, but I, I, as time goes by, you have a different view. What do you think of that? Yeah. And I think that, you know, we're talking about all the barriers. I think that, you know, I want to also talk about why you should seek help. And I think that, you know, as an officer, maybe listening in, there's so many reasons not to go for help, right? So many things we talked about, fear of losing their job, fear of putting on, being put on the quote unquote rubber gun squad, right? Fear of um, not looking like tough, tough yeah, guy, like the weak link or- right? The weak link. Um, but I think that we also have to, uh, look at your own personal lives and who you go home to every day. What's your why? We talk about my profession, like your why, why do you go into this profession? There's always a reason. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure for every man and woman that signs up to put those boots on every day and wear that badge, there's a why. And I think they need to think about that and who do they want to be best for, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just a job to them. It's a calling. And I think that they're serving such a huge population that they often lose sight of their own health. I think that you need to look at who you go home to at night, right? You know, your family, your spouse, and wanting to be the best you can be for them too. Yeah, no, I agree. Listen, I agree. That's a, I mean, I agree a hundred percent because how many, how many times, even wherever you were in the school or you talk to law enforcement professionals, how many of them take it home with them? Right. And, and take it out on. Right. Right. And I am, you know, I'm a huge advocate for mental health treatment for police officers, but also for families, police families. You know, initially we weren't the ones that signed up to wear the badge, right? I, I am also a law enforcement wife and I can see both sides. And, you know, as much as um, m- my husband's the one that wears the badge, I also have a part in that. And I think that um, law enforcement families need more mental health training too and more support to know how to be there for their officers and know know what to do when they're in a tough spot. Yeah. You know, um, right now they're screaming about the police and all the other stuff that's going on. I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave out the firefighters, both professional right. who do that full time. I mean, it's some really brutal areas and, 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 and very difficult situations. The volunteers who are just out of the goodness, literally out of the goodness of their heart, taking their free time away from their family when they're, when they're a little pager goes off or whatever, and they go, the right. whistle goes. And your paramedics. Absolutely. I mean, they're the ones that are putting hands on people trying to save their life. And I mean, I could tell you <laughs> there was times where you're like, trying to get first aid and they're spitting at you, you're swinging at you and you, you want to say, you know what, bud, I'm not going to help you, but you do. And they do. So, you know, they're in that same boat. Absolutely. We are All first day. responders. Right. You know, um, I, I think one of the things agencies, uh, let's talk about the responsibility of the agency. I personally believe if somebody, um, is willing to go reach out to get help, I think the agency has to do their part. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, the reason they may have to go get help is the work they're doing for the agency and for the public. The agencies have to have to dive in and say, "Look, it, if there's a medical issue, and this I consider a medical issue, right? Mm-hmm. Give them time to go. Right? You know why? Why should they have to take time away from their family for something that this job created?" Right. Or, or or exacerbated. Give them the time. You know, the unions in some parts of the country are union and some part are right to work. I get it. 
but in your, in your, um, you know, like I was, I, whenever I was, when I ran one of the units, if somebody ever had an issue, it was, there was no question. The agency didn't know anything. I just said, go take care of what you got to take care of. Look, when the, when the bell rings and it's go time, they showed up, every one of them. And they went balls to the wall, all out to the end. But when it's downtime, if they needed help or they just needed time with their family, you got to go. You got to let them have it. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a two-way street, you know? Right. And I think that that's really the mark of a good supervisor and a good leader, knowing um, what, what motivates people. And I think that's a good, a good point to bring up because we want to work hard for the people who uh, show us respect and, and see us. And I think that that's where I struggle when we talk about the call to defund the police. So what does that do to the mentality and just the state of officers across America, right? Those, those brave men and women who are the good cops, the 99% of good cops out there, um, who are risking everything to go out and serve the community. Um, and you, you know better than I do. And what does it do to them when morale is so low? Yeah. Oh, and right now it's about as low as it's ever been. Right. I don't think I've ever seen it like this. And, and th- you know, they'll shake a lot of it off. But there comes a point where they just throw their hands up and go, you know what? No. And you saw it. You saw it in Baltimore after, uh, what's his name? Freddie Gray, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw it in St. Louis. You saw it in Ferguson. You constantly dump on them. And, and understand you're dumping on a lot of them that didn't do anything wrong. Right. Then when the bell rings, you want to hit 911, you think they're going to come running through fire for you? Right. And people say, well, that's what they're paid for. Yeah, they're human beings, though, first. They're going to be like, I'll get there when I get there. I can remember um, when we first get out of the academy, <clears throat> you're on what's called a coach program. And it's like an FTO. And you, um, your coach has some time on. And uh, I remember we got a call. There was some kind of disturbance. And it was a fight. And I was just, you know, you're like, okay, we're going to go. We're going to go. And he says, relax. We'll get there. And I kind of didn't understand why he was going slow. He says, listen, we can get there right at the beginning of the fight and they all want to fight. Or we can get there after they beat the living hell out of each other and they're tired. (laughs) And I kind of looked and I go, yeah, yeah, with age comes wisdom, I guess. (laughs) Let me ask you this. So I want to read you something from a magazine called Counseling Today. And then I want to ask you a question about it. It says, I believe it's a woman doctor. I can't remember her name here. But she wrote an article and started out, most clinicians who work with law enforcement officers will tell you that the experience can be a little different. Sometimes it seems to incorporate elements of a spy thriller. First, the call from the unknown number. Then, the interrogation from the unidentified caller, asking about your experience with cops, your ability to keep secrets, and if you are any in any way affiliated with the department. So my question is, and that's, I, when I read that, I cracked up because that's exactly probably what I would have done. Yeah. How about training for the clinical people specific to law enforcement? What do you think of that? Or is it a pretty... Yeah, I, th- I think any uh, licensed mental health professional that's skilled in, in trauma and um, I think they're qual- well qualified to treat police officers. Mm-hmm. And, but I do think that um, it takes a special person to know, understand, and support the law enforcement community. And I think that we need more clinicians and more licensed health, mental health professionals that are passionate about 
working with law enforcement officers. Because you, you, I talk to many of my colleagues and they say, oh, I treat an officer or two. And then sometimes you speak to somebody and, and they say, oh, my majority of my practice is police officers now. Mm-hmm. So I always love to hear that because it, it, it means that people are reaching out to, for help. Yeah. Um, but this also means that they're reaching out privately for help, which sure. I also think is a great thing. Uh, well, I can tell you from the inside, I think it's, I don't want to blow up anybody's EAP, but I would never go inside. I right. mean, I just wouldn't. Right. And I even think as a, as a licensed mental health professional, I don't think I would either. You know, as much as we value mental health amongst ourselves as professionals and providers, I would always go privately because... again, I wouldn't want the people that I'm working day in and day out to know what my current struggle is because Mm -hmm. it's really not necessary. If I'm dealing, if I'm going to get treatment and I'm coping and I'm able to put my game face on every day, that's really all you can ask for. I'm reading some of the notes here. Trauma doesn't heal without intervention. Yeah. And, and what's the, what's the long-term effect? Is this just festering? Yeah. So, you know, trauma means wound. And I think we talk about PTSD and that first came out of in service members, out of the military, out of the wars. And um, this is so widespread. It, so many people in America suffer from PTSD. I also like to refer to it as PTSI because it really stresses post-traumatic stress injury. It's an injury to your brain. It's something that doesn't just heal. You may form a scab, but there's a trauma brain. And you may keep that under wraps for many years, but there could be a trigger and something could happen that triggers your trauma or your experience and it brings you back. And you may experience a flood of emotions, irritability, anxiety, panic attacks, depression, um, suicidal thoughts. I think we need to talk about this. We need to make it um, a bigger conversation so people know the signs and symptoms and they feel safe reaching out for help. But one thing I do want to stress is you can heal from this. You can heal from post-traumatic stress, psychological injuries. Mm -hmm. That's, uh, and I think that's what they all need to hear because a lot of them will just say, you know, screw it. I'm just going to deal with it. And they could kind of compartmentalize it. I can speak from experience. I, I mean, for some reason, it probably has a lot to do with all the years of you know, we always say putting people in a body bag. Right. Um, I remember I, I kind of blew up at a family member one time. Uh, I was told I didn't understand the stress of their life or their stress of their job. And I turned around and it just happened to be the wrong day. And um, I didn't say anything right away. I was like, what the hell does that mean? And uh, they went on and I said, listen, let me explain something to you. This morning... I had to put a baby into a body bag. And I never realized when everybody talked about on a baby, the soft spot on the head until I went to the autopsy. And I had to sit there and watch this. And then I had to literally walk out, make sure all my evidence was in order, put everything in, in the car, drive back, sign it in, and then go home. And somewhere between there and home, I had to throw a light switch. And just shut that off like it never happened. And one of the things I found over the years is in events like death in families and stuff, I have no emotion. I sat in a church. A cousin of mine passed away who I was very close with, and he died at a young age, and it was really tragic. And we were really tight. 
you know, and it really just, oh, man, I miss him like crazy. He was a great guy. I remember sitting in the church at his funeral, listening to his daughters speak, young daughters. I mean, it, this is like a scene out of a movie, one of those heart, really heart-wrenching moments. Bagpipes are playing. I mean, it's, it's everything you think from like an Irish funeral. And everybody in the church is just a puddle. They're just sobbing uncontrollably. And I'm just sitting there looking around, going, what the hell is wrong with me? I never said what's the matter with them, because I'm looking at them and going, they're having the right reaction. What the fuck is the matter with me? Why am I not doing anything? I'm just sitting here like, okay, so uh, we're going to go to the repast later and get something to eat. I don't know. Right. And, I, you know, I think about that a lot. Not that moment, but other moments where you just feel, where'd that emotion go? Did I kill it? Well, that doesn't you know? sound crazy to me, because I think that as first responders, police officers uh, have to learn to compartmentalize. So, you know, you, you may have been, or the officer that puts that baby in a body bag may have to go home then to their own baby. How do you function? You know, and I think that you become a little hardened over the years and you learn that you have to turn your emotions off in order to Mm -hmm. cope in the moment with the, the situations you're dealing with. And I think that's even more of a reason to be in therapy and receiving mental health treatment because it's important to not turn those emotions off. They're real. It's important. It's, it's part of your healing. Um, and when I say mental health treatment, I don't want people to think that, um, I think all people should be in a treatment program. I think that, you know, private therapy, you can go once a week, 45 minutes a a week. Mm -hmm. It's something that's so important to help sort through all of these emotions that it sounds like how you've stuffed for so many years, right? Oh yeah. There's no doubt. Right. You beat them back down and you say, okay, we got another one. We have time to go to the next one. Right. You know, there was days you have them, uh, lined up. You you know, people say, oh, we have stack calls. Sometimes we have, we call stack calls is like they're lined up one after the other. We've had stacked bodies, like jobs with bodies. And you're just, you're trying to get through them all. And, you know, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect, um, I mean, I worked in the world of crime scene investigation, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave it right there with the, them. I mean, people that do that for a living, I have just an unbelievable amount of respect for because as as the criminal justice system has grown, evolved, and gotten better, that's, I know this sounds crazy because that's what I did for them, but that's what makes the case. You know, interviews can change. What, what somebody's statements can change. People lie. They don't want to testify. There's a lot of things that that is all fluid and moving around. People get threatened or afraid and now they won't, they won't testify as a witness. The physical evidence never does. It never changes. And to do that, part of that physical evidence is the human body and dealing with and touching, picking up, manipulating the dead. And, and it's not, you know, it's not a funeral home here and they didn't die under good circumstances most of the time. And, and that stuff just tends to just be, eat you away slowly inside and almost like, I don't want to say dehumanize you, but you're just kind of cold. Right. You know? And I think you learn how you have to cope in the moment to do your job. Right. And, and some people, um, have their ways of coping when they get home or when, you know, we could, this is probably another whole podcast, but, uh, the numbers are overwhelming in terms of officers who self-medicate with drugs or alcohol to cope with their post-traumatic psychological injuries. And, you know, yeah. uh, well, <laughs> you're right. That is an whole other crickets. episode. Yeah. Um, I think, especially the 
booze. Right, mm-hmm. right. And I think that it's so much more acceptable, right, to walk in the house, open the refrigerator, take out a beer, pour a drink and oh, say, yeah. okay, this makes me feel better. Because- well, let me ask, let me ask you this because there was times, um, I'm retired from that now, so I can disclose this. <laughs> you know, there was times we had a shooting or we had something afterwards and we were done. It was a lot of work, a lot of paperwork, letting everything done. We'd sit around, have a few beers as a group. You're and not going to out anybody else, are no, you? No, no, no. I Just I did it. No, we <laughs> But I mean, it was kind of that uh, that moment where you all came down from from full throttle right. before you went home. And I actually always looked forward to that. Like, it wasn't, nobody got drunk. I mean, it wasn't like that. It was a beer. Um, and then you kind of just finished up what you were doing and, and, you, and you went about your business. And you all went home kind of, right. all right, everybody's good. And we, and we left. So, I mean, I don't want everybody out there. <laughs> No, and I I think what you're describing is self-care. I think that is it a bad thing to sit around, you know, almost as a unit to kind of come together and have a beer. That's not a bad thing. More of a social thing. Right? It's more of a social thing and a coming together after dealing with such a traumatic incident. Mm -hmm. But um, I think we need to talk about self-care as a whole, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the topic of suicides mm-hmm. in law enforcement. Unfortunately, military is off the hook. And I, I mean, mm-hmm. it always goes up and down as conflicts come for military. But law enforcement, it, they don't really um, go up and down. Right. It's, it's always there. Right. Yeah. So a Massachusetts-based nonprofit group called Blue Health does a great job um, tracking um, they, it's a nonprofit organization that is dedicated to going across the country and raising mental health awareness amongst officers and their families. And they reported that at least 228 police officers died by suicide in 2019. That is more officers than were killed in the line of duty. My, you know, my professional opinion is that the majority of those officers were struggling with PTSD. Mm-hmm. And um, if I could say anything today and get one point across, it's that there is help and you are brave to reach out for help. And I do want to stress there is a 24-hour, seven days a week lifeline. It's called the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And it could be reached at one 800 273 talk that's 1-800-273-8255. And I think that um, the topic of suicide is something that people aren't comfortable talking about. And they need to be. They need to be comfortable talking about it at home, at work, and with their kids. It's something that um, you shouldn't feel ashamed of. So if you're having suicidal thoughts, thoughts of wanting to kill yourself, that you can reach out for help. There is help. And also to the families of law enforcement officers, there are signs. There are always signs. Sometimes they're more subtle, but educate yourself on those signs and and help your officer get the help that they need. Yeah. No, listen, I'm with you. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, I, I can recall through the years having to go as a crime scene person, process the scene of a suicide of somebody you knew, and then just go back to work. Right. And nobody ever checked. Nobody really looked and said, how are you doing? And, um, you, you know, at those times you want to look and say, maybe you should ask how they were doing. Right. And, uh, and it was really a sad thing when you see something like that. You know, in the military, it was upwards of 22 a day coming right. home was just, I mean, that's, that's just a staggering number. And then every day 
you get these numbers, several hundred a year, more than a line of duty. I did not know that. I did not know it was more than a line of duty. That blows my mind. And suicide's preventable. And I think yeah. that's the key that you can get help. Mm-hmm. You can heal. Yeah. And there's no shame in reaching out. And these are these numbers obviously are all confidential. Right. Yeah. And they actually talk about on their website, Blue Help, that these are just the suicides that were logged. So right. they so estimate that there's way more. And, you know, b- this year, based on COVID, they're saying that those numbers are rising dr- dramatically. Yeah, that's sad. Very sad. What's your take on the call to defund the police? We talked a little bit about that. Maybe. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's crazy. I think that we need to give police more support, more funding. Uh, we talk about, you know, if you want to look at the bigger picture, not just isolated instances. Uh, we want to look at where are those gaps? What what do police officers need training in? More training. If if we defund, who's going to provide that safety and security across our nation that we all are used to? You know, I think that when we talk about serving and protecting what law enforcement officers do every day, it's kind of um, unseen. The, the greater community doesn't see what officers do day in and day oh, out. They see the one incident that right. the media wants to make an issue right. of. So like you said, when when you're in a situation where you need police for your own safety, you want somebody to come when they're called, right? And oh, I man. think that we look at New York City and at the amount that they've already been defunded. They came out and spoke and said that there's posts that are not manned at this point. Nobody's manning these posts because they don't have enough people. And they're also struggling as a department. You know, we talk about suicides. Mm. Oh my God. They, they were Overwhelming. one of the highest. Right. They were one of the highest. They used, to, they used to come across the river all the time. We'd, I hate to say it, but there was a lot, they, they just pull over on the side of the highway and we'd, we'd find them. It would happen a couple times a year for a while. It was just, man, holy cow. The, um, I personally think that this defunding thing is obviously not going to happen. You're going to hear some, some, probably fairly liberal politicians in cities, mayors, and, and they're going to pander to their base and they're going to say, we're going to defund and we're going to give more money to this or that. And we're going to take it out of the police budget. I actually think what's going to happen in the end is we're going to reinvest. And it just may be a shift in where we invest. Right. And I think training, sooner or later, police administrations are going to wake up and realize that training is not... Um, it's not on the bargaining table, you know. It's not on the, you know, it's not on the blackjack table here. And what I mean is, <clears throat> I just got a call the other day. We were scheduled to teach a class um, in one area, and one of the people that had signed up called up and said, "Hey, man, I'm going to have to back out because, um, you know, our agency just cut our budget back, just like everybody else is doing. And the first thing that went was training. And I, I, I just scratch my head and I say, Is anybody paying attention? Right. This is where you need to reinvest. Right. And I think when we look at defunding, what does that mean to most people? You know, I'd I'd like to hear from people who support this because you know what's going to happen. Our children that are out there or teenagers, think about the teenagers. Think about, um, you know, sexual assault crimes. Mm -hmm. Think about these awful things going on in communities that I'm sure people are turning the blind eye to. But it's happening. It's happening every day. And what's going to 
go to the wayside with defunding. I think there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, police work in terms of investigation and all all the stuff that a crime scene organization does that there's not going to be funding for. And what's going to happen is criminals, violent criminals are not going to be brought to justice. And our children, and we are all less safe because of it. And I think we really need to take a long, hard look at that. I think a lot of it right now is heat of the moment, a lot of emotion, a lot of outrage. And I said one of the one of the earlier podcasts that, you know, emotion and outrage sometimes is a sign of weakness. It's weakness because you're not using your ability to reason. Um, I was speaking with a gentleman, a former FBI agent, friend of mine, um, who who's when we were we brought up the topic of this thing that happened in Seattle, you know, talking about defunding and lawlessness, this chop zone or whatever they, right. Chaz or Chop, or they changed the name. And the mayor was pretty weak and feckless, and she had the police back out, which is really an unlawful order. I mean, the, the chief is bound to do certain things. But in that two-week period, I believe it was, when they were in there, they had, I want to say, two homicides, a sex assault, and some other shooting. And he brought up a great point. He says, listen, if you, you may abolish law enforcement as you know it, but there will be law enforcement. It's just not going to be from who you like. And what he meant was, he says, look at what happened there. A drug lord moved right in and he established that hierarchy within that zone. He's almost like a little warlord. We can't have that. Cooler heads have to prevail here. And this reinvestment into into law enforcement has to happen. And if you don't like the way things are going, then you need to sit down and have that open discussion and you need to decide we all need to decide as a society, okay, what is it you want? We work for you. Right. Tell us what you want. Make the proper laws and 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 do that because the other side, like you said, is a horror show. Right. And I think that it's fair to say that there could be some sort of assessment of each organization, different departments, just to identify the deficits individually, even among amongst officers, not to punish them, but to educate them. How do we make them better? Right? Sure. You're only as good as your weakest link. Right. So when we're talking bigger picture, we want everybody to be strong. We want everybody to be educated. We want everybody to be practicing with the highest moral standards, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that that points again to more funding and more education and training. What do you think of the call for, and some of these crazy politicians have brought up, and actually they try to um, implement it, in certain areas to say, we're no longer going to have police respond to certain calls. We're going to send social workers. Go ahead. (laughs) And go. So me personally, you won't catch me at a crime scene. Um, I think that personally, I don't believe a mental health professional can provide the safety and order that we need at certain scenes. Um, You know, you're talking about I know I heard a lot of rumblings about domestic violence calls. Oh, we'll send the social worker. Listen, we didn't sign up for that. I know that uh, certain scenes you're going to show up and somebody's holding a knife. What does a social worker do then? We're not trained um, to put our life on the line in that sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Is it fair to say that we could play a bigger role in the law enforcement agency? Sure. You know, do you want to bring mental health professionals in, like we said, to train or to talk about de-escalation techniques or ways to better approach domestic violence calls? Absolutely. But 
replacing a law trained law enforcement officer with a social worker, I think is greatly irresponsible. Yeah. The other thing they never talk about when they bring that up is, um, and and they bring it up because they don't know what they're talking about because they don't do it for a living. They don't, as a matter of fact, most of the people talking about it don't do either of those things, law enforcement or social work. They don't ever bring up how fast something escalates to the highest level of violence. Perfect example is that shooting in Atlanta. Right. It was just a DUI arrest. That's all it was. And then, that individual decided he wanted to fight. And bang, literally, bang. Right. A minute two later, it's over. He's dead. And uh, they don't get it sometimes how something can be very normal and just somebody steps on the throttle and it's over. Right. And uh, you're going to get people hurt by by making those, right. those moves. And I think it's hard because public doesn't really understand because they're not there. And I don't think they get all the facts. I don't think they really know what's going on behind the scenes. And I think that an an important point to make is that uh, strong relationships between law enforcement and the community create a safer environment for everybody. So when you're calling to defund the police and you're, you know, in a sense, villainizing all police officers. What does that do to our community and the safety? And what does it do? I mean, I think about children. Yeah, because they're the next generation that's watching this. Right, and I I want my children to support police officers and to feel safe and comfortable going to one for help when Mm -hmm. they need it. I think we need to model what that looks like. Sure. Really, you know, I always say nobody hates a bad cop more than a good cop, right? It's true. But we can't put down all cops because of the actions of a few. And I, I want to start seeing a more positive movement of education, awareness, and understanding moving forward for all involved. I think it's what's best for our community, and it will ultimately make law enforcement and the community safer. Yeah, I agree. I want to finish up with one thing here. Um, there was an article written, again, it's in that uh, counseling today. In the, in the, towards the end of that article, um, we mentioned their fear of suspension or transfer if they come forth or if somebody finds out they're having treatment. But they say there's <clears throat> eight myths. Um, and these myths are the, some of the reasons why people in law enforcement aren't seeking help. And I'll get your feedback on it. The first one, departments or agencies have the right to obtain information about the officers that seek help from licensed mental health professionals. They don't. That's false. And even if um, somebody in an agency wanted to reach out, they caught wind that an officer was seeing, for example, oh, that person's seeing Kristen Kobo. Let me, I'm going to get her information and call. I could never confirm or deny that I am treating an individual. That's right. against my code of ethics. Right. So that's completely false. Debunked. Debunked. Okay. Number two, rights to privacy change if you use your insurance or your employee assistance program. That's false too. That's false too. There's confidentiality either way you go. There's supposed to be. Yeah. It's all covered under HIPAA, right? Yep. So false. Um, number three, there is no reason to see a licensed professional because the rules are exactly the same with a peer support team. I laugh when I say that. False. Yeah. Uh, this, these are the dangers also. Um, 
Cop to Cop, I think, is a great organization. I think they support one another. I think it's a great mission. But sometimes you have to make those tough decisions that you are not trained to make. Right. And that's tough. And, you know, what if there are signs and you don't know what to do and you miss an opportunity to save somebody's life? I think that mental health, licensed mental health professionals are so critical in these situations. Yeah. Another myth is that the department or the agency that you work for automatically has the right to know if an officer receives a mental health diagnosis or takes medication. False. That's absolutely false. That's all covered under HIPAA as well. Right. If an officer seeks help from a hospital or a rehabilitation facility voluntarily, the department automatically has the right to this information. False. Yeah. Um, And the only way they get it is if you give them permission. Right. If you sign a release, if you want mm-hmm. your department to speak to you, whoever your provider is, that's your choice. And you can sign a release and to for those two to speak, but you are not obligated to by any means. Another one is if an officer seeks the support of a licensed mental health professional, that automatically means that the officer is not fit for duty. That's false. That's dangerous, actually. That's act- actually one of the most common misconceptions and it's very dangerous. Uh, you know, somebody may be going to therapy routinely just to stay healthy, mm-hmm. just to keep their head on straight, to be the best they could be. And it doesn't mean that they're not fit. It means that they're actually nurturing their brains and nurturing their psyche. And that's most important. All right. Well, the last one's here is counseling is the same as a fit for duty evaluation. Absolutely not. Yeah. Um, one of the things I remember is, and, and this is where I think agencies kind of screw themselves because one of the things that they bring up, and I remember this happening where, you know, somebody who may have been a little bit of a problem child on the job or there's a disciplinary issue and they say, we'll send them for a fit, fitness for duty, almost like as a punishment, like, okay, you want to play that game? I'm going to send you for a fitness for duty. You're almost taking something like that because that will go in their personnel folder because the agency is mandating it. Um, and, and you, and you, I think they bastardized the whole thing. It's, it's, you're using it for the wrong reasons. The other thing they do is, I remember just before I got out, the agency I was with, they, we used to have an annual physical every year and it was done on duty time. It was, it was actually a great thing. Right. It was on duty time. We had to go to this same hospital. You'd meet there, you know, a bunch of people were there every day for months. This hospital did this thing for the whole agency. The agency got the results, but it was a it was a physical. It was you know your heart rate and EKG, how you doing, everything good. They paid for it. They set up the time you went. They recently said, "No, we're not going to do that anymore. You're going to go to your doctor, and you're going to use your insurance, and then you're going to give us the results." And I remember saying, "Yeah, no, 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 no." And it was a big back and forth. I think they. I think they came to some sort of arrangement after I was out of there, but I mean, it was like, what are you doing? You just didn't want to pay for it, but you still want all my medical results from my doctor now. That's, that's a negative. That's my HIPAA right. rights. No, I'm not giving you that. And they said, well, you're not going to get, you can't get, you know, you won't be eligible for a promotion. I'm saying this is total nonsense. But a lot of agencies do that. They kind of throw the shit against the wall, see what sticks. And mm-hmm. if you don't resist, they win. If you do... They'll back down, but they want to do it quietly. So I'm um, this this whole topic. I think probably today 
is more important than it's ever, ever been. Um, right. You got new officers coming on the job. The job's not the, what it used to be. And, um, I mean, they are getting brutalized by the media. Absolutely. I mean, it's a sin. Um, I, listen, I want to thank you for taking the time to come talk to us because I think this is a critically important topic. I hope a lot of people out there listening, or, or police officers, get a chance to listen to this. I hope you understand some of those myths and what your rights are and the fact that going for uh, the care, your own mental health care, is a positive thing, not a negative thing, not a sign of weakness. And, um, I mean, you heard it right from here from a, a licensed professional who, who went through it. And we could always have her back on. If anybody has any questions or comments, you can always hit us up at uh, undertheyellowtapepodcast.com. And, uh, Kristen, I really want to thank you. Go yeah, ahead. and I just want to say in closing, thanks for having me. And to all the brave men and women out there who are serving and protecting our communities day in and day out, we see you, we support you, and we pr- appreciate you. Man, I couldn't have said it better. All right. I want to thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk soon.